When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, politics, and beyond. My guest today is General Sir Chris Deverell, after joining the 2nd Royal Tank Regiment in 1983, he served in the British Army for over 40 years, ending his career as a four-star general. Over this period, he led multiple organizations of tens of thousands of people, civilian and military, frontline and supporting, on operations and in headquarters. His most recent role was as one of the UK Chiefs of Staff and Commander of Joint Forces. During his time in the army, he drove innovation at the Ministry of Defence and since retiring, if that's the right word, Chris, retiring from that um, career, let's say, he's taken on a number of roles, including as a partner in a cybersecurity venture fund. Chris, it's lovely to meet you and thanks for joining us on the podcast. You too, Chris. It's great to be with you. Thank you for your time. Well, I don't think we can start anywhere else than with Ukraine, I think, at the moment, given uh, how you spent the large part of your career. It, it, would you say that conflict is unique in your career? Well, I think it, 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 in many ways it is. Um, it's happening in Europe uh, and it is at a scale 
um, that we haven't seen before. I mean, so obviously there's been conflict, particularly in the Balkans, but this scale is 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 unique. Um, and uh, you know, the 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 risk, the danger, I think, um, is at a level that we haven't seen before. This is a very very serious moment in history. And so, do you think the fact that we've you know ended up in this t terrible, unprecedented situation? Do you think that that represents a failure of leadership, certainly, let's say, in the West? Well, I think um, you can look at this and say that over time, Putin's ambitions have been reinforced by our inaction. You know, you can say that, first of all, in Chechnya, then in Georgia, then in Crimea, the Donbass, and then in Syria, he, increasing, he got increasingly violent uh, increasingly ambitious, and we didn't do anything or didn't do much. And so you could, I think, uh, describe that as a failure of leadership. But I think the reality is that it was extremely difficult to sense in any of those individual moments as you went along that you were right on the cliff edge, whereas I think we can now see we are right on that cliff edge. So that said then, how would you evaluate how the West has responded um, since, you know, I, I, in some ways, I suppose the unimaginable, I guess, happened. Well, I think it's actually done pretty well. It has maintained a level of unity that people, I think, uh, you know, remembering back to, for example, the world of Donald Trump uh, on his presidency, couldn't possibly have imagined. If you think of some of the things that have been done, like the the... Uh, ending of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline by Germany or the or the um, closure of the SWIFT system to Russian payments. Um, th these were things that were completely off the table just a few months ago. And, and yet the, the West has come together and done them. Um, so I think uh, it, it has responded extremely well in the circumstances in terms of, of, of that achievement of unity, given how many distinct interests are in play here. You know, the, the, these countries are all very different and they've got different po politics, different parties in power, different individuals, different culture, and somehow the West has managed to, to draw that all together. And I think that is actually the center of gravity now. It's maintaining that unity. And it will be exceedingly difficult because, the, for example, the sanctions will bite back on us increasingly over time and it will be very hard to maintain them. But but that unity is, I think, in the end, what will do for Putin. And, and I mean, any, at any point over the past, not just uh, five weeks, but two years, being a futurologist has been a slightly uh, mm. unforgiving game, mm. but I'm nevertheless going to try you. Um, how do you see, you talked about, uh, you know, eventual victory. How do you think this will play out? Well, when I talk about eventual victory, I'm, I'm talking about, a very, you know, the, the long arc of history. Yeah, um, right. Uh, which, which Martin Luther King said, you know, the, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I, I mm. do fundamentally agree with that. And I think that over time, eventually, autocracies fail. But you can't mm. be sure when that moment is going to arise. Because essentially what dooms them is the, the leader uh, imposes a system where people only tell him or her what they want to hear. Um, and, uh, you know, when it all depends upon the uh, vision, understanding uh, and decision making of one person, uh, which is the, the norm in autocracies, eventually um, they fail.
And you've, you can see that repeated in history. Um, and I think maybe two years ago, we all um, became uh, eminent virologists or something like that. I think we've, ne- we've now all become uh, amateur Kremlin- Kremlinologists, I think, haven't we? Uh, and, yes. and I think, you know, we, 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 we all are busy speculating about that point, about we, did, is one of the reasons we ended up here because he was being told what people thought he wanted to hear rather than maybe what he needed to hear. I mean, I guess we... To an extent, if we ever know the answer to that, it will be a very long time into the future from now. Yeah, I, I think it's a reasonable assumption, though. I think there's quite a lot of evidence to support that assumption. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you, you get into groupthink, and you and it's it's easier to get into groupthink in a in an autocracy than it is in a democracy. There, yeah. there are more voices in play in a democracy. And do you think then, if you were in your old job? Um, and we'll we'll come on and talk about your your new jobs uh, in a little while. But if you were still in your old job, um, or even let's put it another way, the people who are currently doing your previous job are they sitting looking at what's happening in Ukraine and revising what they think in terms of our let, never mind what the is let's say the opposition might be doing, but how what what we think about modern conflicts? Yeah, good question. So so. In the first instance, what they will be focusing on doing is helping Ukraine, yeah, uh, and 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 trying to work through all the various different scenarios that might arise, and to work out what the response should be. So, for example, were, were Putin to use chemical weapons, what would NATO do in response? So that, that it is that it is the current fight that will be uh, preoccupying them now. Uh, they may have some discussion about what does this all tell us. But as a general principle, the military, I think, seeks to learn lessons at some distance from the event, you know, mm. not, not to do so immediately. Because our experience is that trying to work out what has happened and what, to, what lessons to draw from it takes time and, and, and detailed study. You can't, you can't right. just um, dream it up. So. So I think you have to be really careful to draw conclusions. We need we need time and we need um, a lot of thought. And do you think that um, uh, military generally, but let's let's take it to the, the the British military, given that's your specific area of expertise. Although I'm sure you interacted with 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 many many others in over your time. Do you think they are generally good learning organisations? I mean, the, the kind of the question behind that, I suppose, for me is that I think that you know a lot of our understanding around leadership comes originally, I guess, from 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 the military back over many centuries. Do you think the military or the militaries you've been uh, you've had direct experience with are good at that? Is that something that's institutionalised in a good way within them? Yes, I, they certainly seek to be. Mm. And I would say the closer you get to in a military conflict. The more they actually are, you know, if you if you are um, fighting and dying um, on the strength of your tactics and and your performance, it makes for incredible innovation. People often think of the First World War, for example, as being you know static trench yeah. warfare, but actually, yeah. if you look in detail at what at at, at the evolution of tactics in in World War One, mm. it was extraordinary innovation from people. Who had to do it to stay alive, and to keep yeah. their people alive? So, yeah. so I, yes, I think that, that, that as a general principle, militaries are learning organisations. However, they're also uh, not very diverse, and 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 that acts against against learning. I think 
Um, but, but certainly, if you ask military leaders about the, the characteristics of leadership, I think that most would say curiosity was a, a really important characteristic. And of course, it, uh, you can't learn things without being curious. I do just want to come back briefly to, to Zelensky. I mean, he is already a, an icon, I think, yes. whose uh, leadership will echo down the ages. I mean, I, I think that is, that, that is nailed on. Um, what do you think it is about what he's done um, that has made him a great leader? I mean, I know it's a difficult question because it's, a, this, it's such a kind of an intangible thing. But when you look at him, what do you think lessons we could learn? Well, I think the first thing to say is we don't really know very much about what's around him, you know, what, what the rest of the leadership team looks like. And there may, there may be some amazing people in the rest of that leadership team that, that are really yeah. helping. Him. I, I, um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there must be because, yeah. I mean, you know, leadership's yeah. a team game, right, in, yeah. in, all, in all circumstances. But in terms of, of, of Zelensky, I, th I think uh, communicated extremely well. I think that's, that's a very important part of, of leadership. Communicate, communicate, communicate. He he's offered clarity. You know, he hasn't complicated his ask. His ask is very simple, really, and he's kept on repeating it. You know, even even though in some respects he isn't getting what he's asking for from the West, he's nevertheless continued to bang that drum. Um, and I, I, you know, I think his message is quite a simple message. He is defending freedom. And that, and that Putin is not going to stop with Ukraine. So that so Ukraine is on the front line uh, for democracy, and and freedom isn't free. The, 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 I think these are relatively simple messages. So that that provision of clarity, I think, is a really important thing from a leader. And you can see it in other wartime leaders like Churchill. You know, some some really clear and simple messages. He's obviously resilient himself. I mean, the pressure he must be under is just immense. You can't, people dying, his people dying, his soldiers dying, he's under personal threat himself. Um, and yet, day in, day out, he's there uh, demonstrating leadership. It's extraordinary, and that, that, that resilience is immense. And I think courage, you know, I mean, he's been brave. Um, uh, but, you know, so have his people. And, and we may be underestimate, you know, in seeing Zelensky as somehow this unique and extraordinary thing, we may be understating the significance of the Ukrainian people. Because if, if really what he's doing is representing this widespread resilience and courage amongst his people, it's a lot easier for him to do that. Yes, I think, I think that's right. I mean, he's, he has an everyman elements about him doesn't he For sure. in his in his manner and tone and i also think the the thing about him that's remarkable is that is the physical courage aspect yeah. of it that, that, that we're seeing and um and this is not in any way to disparage great political leaders of the past but but he is he is he's literally right there in the middle yeah. of the fight as well isn't he and i think nobody would have thought it belittled him if he'd said look i think it's in everybody's interest if i sort of just move move a bit further move a bit further west <laughs> i mean biden asked him to didn't he um, yeah well i mean i think that line that is is quoted i don't know whether it's apocryphal or true but the line you know i want ammunition not a ride is absolutely going to go down in history yeah, as go down in history because I it's wish not I'd just said it. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, although I'm glad I didn't have to say it. Let's say that. <laughs> Let's say it. careful what careful what I wish for. Absolutely, because it's not just it's not just the 
the content of that line, it's the way that line is delivered makes it already absolutely iconic. I mean, that would be a, a famous quote to go alongside all famous quotes in history. Absolutely. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think we all we all have hold him close to our hearts, I think. So um so we're gonna go we're gonna go back. So we've 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 evaluated everybody else as leaders <laughs> who solved all those problems. Uh, so Chris, we're gonna go back. So you you studied uh, politics, uh, philosophy and economics uh, at Oxford, the uh, favoured by politicians. Yes. I think I don't know how many prime ministers. I don't know how many is uh, too have done many. PPE. Too many. Yes, exactly. So, uh, so anyway, you didn't become a politician. You joined the army. What was? Were you always going to, or you know, were you, was that ever since you were a little boy, or was it a? a, a yeah, so I think. I mean, my family tradition was was public service. You know, my father was a civil servant. Um, his father was a civil servant. Uh, my um, uh, maternal grandfather was a judge. Um, uh, so, so there, there was no real commercial uh, gene right. in our bodies. You know, it was all some kind of public <laughs> service. So, so I didn't really, to be honest, consider a lot else. And what of all, of all the roles that you had during your, you know, your long and illustrious mm. career in, in the army, which was the one you enjoyed the most? That's what you mean by enjoy. I mean, the, the, um, the most found stimulating. Most rewarding, perhaps. Yeah. Found most rewarding. Or... Yeah. Well, the, I think the most stimulating was definitely the last one. I, you know, I was a, a member right. of the Chief Staff Committee, which is which is six men. They're all men um, mm. who collectively run Britain's armed forces. Um, mm. And that, that was a fascinating uh, period, um, you know, right on the inside of everything that, that the military were doing. Um, uh, and also... You know, running a very large organization, twenty-five thousand people in, in in my command. Um, mm. So that, at one level, was immensely stimulating um, and interesting, uh, enjoyable. I mean, you know, um, I think back to life as a young troop leader with a troop of three tanks. You know, um, mm. if you really want to find things that were enjoyable, you know. Um, roaring around the countryside with the wind in your hair that, that that's that's enjoyable yeah. Um, yeah. working yeah. out how to make the budget add up is not it might be interesting <laughs> but it isn't enjoyable no i think that's i think that's that's true in most of our jobs only we don't we also don't get the going around with the wind in the hair and the tanks as well <laughs> we don't we don't get that far either <laughs> so i want to i want to pick on some pick up on something you just talked about then you talked about the the Certainly, when you were in that role, the, the six people that ran the military were, were all men. Um, in in an earlier uh, in an earlier episode, uh, I interviewed Colonel Lucy Giles, who's mm -hmm. uh, the most senior woman uh, uh, in the British Army. Um, um, what do you think the the military generally can do in order to attract to to attract more women, more minorities, and of mm. course, not just attract the um, um, them into the into the organization but get them to the top of the organization as well what more can you do you think mm. the military can do it's a very intractable problem um and it's not that there isn't any will to fix it because there is um lucy by the way is not the most sen senior woman in the british army there are more senior women but she she did okay. something very unusual which was run um uh college at, at sandhurst oh so, yes she um, did sorry yes yes that's my mistake um so you know, ultimately, it's a bottom-fed organization, so it takes a long time to generate leaders. I, I had a 40-year career before I got to be, you know, a 37-year yeah. career before I got to be a four-star general. So it's 
it takes a long time to change. Yeah, you can't just go and hire somebody from no. McKinsey and put them no, in as a general. Unfortunately, although they'd be <laughs> yeah. no, no doubt absolutely brilliant at it, um, <laughs> you can't. So you have to bring it up. I, I think the biggest problem that really is uh, still an issue and, and unresolved is what does the ideal career profile look like? Every organization mm. has a, a master race, you know, if you'll forgive the horrible yeah. analogy. They're rather unfortunate. You know, I mean, every organization has a, has, a, has a function from which it draws its leaders. In the military, the senior leaders have been drawn from the, the fighting function, you know, right. not the logistic people or the HR people or the technical yeah. people. or the, it, it, You know, historically, it's been drawn from those who... Um, close with the enemy. Um, and there are reasons for that. You know, it's understandable. Yeah. If that's the most yeah. extreme thing we do, it's understandable you might want to have some yeah. people with some experience of that in senior leadership yeah. roles. But unfortunately, what it then does is because those roles have uh, have only recently been opened up to women mm. and are only, you know, not very many women want to do them or are um, successful in getting into them, um, it, we have a problem. So in my opinion, what we need to do is change that philosophy about what it takes to be a senior leader. We need to start thinking, as I think many other organizations do, yes. that you can draw, that the, the strategic leadership in particular doesn't require somebody who knows how to get his bayonet out. You know, that it, it requires a completely different skill set. And, and we, we ought to prize logisticians and HR people and technical people and so on, much more than we do. And if we did, they would then um, move up the ladder more quickly. And I think that is, a, that is a remaining problem that needs to be addressed if the military is really going to get senior female and ethnic minority leaders. In, you've criticized in the past uh, 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 hierarchical information flows. Mm. So uh, um, how how does the military or how do you think the military should deal with that particularly given that that it is almost the the archetypal hierarchical organization i mean you you literally give people orders i mean mm. we have a hierarchy in our business but we, we we don't we don't call each other sir and give each other orders <laughs> um, uh so you know how how do you how do you fit those two together both challenging hierarchical top-down i suppose information flows whilst also maintaining a a, a necessary hierarchy yeah well, it, 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 the answer is, I mean, you're right to point out that it's not straightforward. Um, you actually have to, <laughs> yes. to, to, you have to design for it. You need to, uh, for example, uh, when you're thinking about communicating down, um, mm. you know, what I, what I felt um, in the more senior roles I had was I couldn't rely mm. on that hierarchy to communicate my message all the way from top to bottom. There were too right. many rungs in that ladder and right. too many possibilities for Chinese whispers or people yeah. who didn't agree with me not communicating yeah. my message. So I felt very yeah. strongly that I needed to communicate direct to what you might call the workforce. And to yeah. that end, I, you know, I went, I went to a lot of visiting units and, and did town halls yeah. where you stand up and deliver your message yeah. and then you take questions. Yeah. I joined... Twitter, um, you know, uh, which was unheard of at the time, um, right. uh, and started 
doing my own Twitch. I didn't hand off the responsibility to someone else. I did it all myself. Yeah. Um, yep. And you know, so, so you find ways of communicating that bypass that hierarchy. That's very important, I think, in the, a leader of today. You cannot rely on yeah. hierarchical message delivery. But you also have to find ways of taking in information that is not dependent on that hierarchy in, in yeah, getting absolutely. it to. And that, yeah. that's about curiosity. And it's also about having a, a, you know, a, really thinking about your sources of understanding. And uh, this is something that I used to explain to people. And even after I'd explained it, they would look at me with bewilderment. So, but I'll try and explain it to you, Chris. Okay, yeah, give it a go, yeah. Um, so if you asked me in, in those roles before, to, to put a percentage on my various sources of understanding. You know, how much understanding of the situation did I get from my staff? And how much understanding did I get from my superiors? And how much understanding did I get from the outside world? I used to say that I got about 25% of my understanding from the staff. And that used to horrify them. Because they all do this immense amount of work, and you know, it, yeah, they, they do this immense job, amount that in yeah. order to be to provide me with understanding. Yeah. Um, but of course, the thing is, they 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 don't know what they don't know. They 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 are they are only as free to provide information as as the constraints we put upon them. So we give them a frame of reference. We give them a hierarchy. We give them a way of thinking about the problem, and they and they duly present information that fits, that maps to that. Um, so I got most of my understanding by talking to other people who had nothing to do with the organization, who therefore had a different framework, a different, a different understanding. Um, uh, and that was really illuminating. Um, so, so, you know, I think, I think that's a very important thing in a hierarchical organization. You have to be willing to go out and find new sources of understanding that are not based on your own system. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that that that, that I'd love to to, to to hear you talk about a bit is, I mean, it strikes me that the 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 military and you know a lot, a lot like I said, I think a lot of a lot of what we'd call business organizational structure, it you know mirrors or those echoes between that and you know the original organizational hierarchies, which were the military. And yet what we try and do as an organization, and I'm sure what what good military organizations try and do, is they need to find a balance between, um, I suppose, a balance between command, um, as in somebody somewhere has to make mm. some decisions about the objectives that need to be fulfilled, and individual group or team or unit, I guess, in the context of the army, autonomy and um free thinking and, you know, all those kind of words. And, you know, it seems to me that, that, that great organizations find a find an effective balance between the two. You don't want total, like, everybody just making it up as they go along for themselves, but nor do you want some rigid command and control structure. How do you find that balance in, mm. particularly in, in, a, in something as chaotic, I guess, as, as conflict? Yeah. So I think you'd be surprised about one dimension of this, which is that there is a general uh, assumption that the forces are extremely hierarchical and therefore dictatorial. In other words, I say jump, you know, and you say how high. But that's not, I think, the reality. I mean, especially not in peacetime. I mean, the armed forces, I think, operate by consensus to a much greater degree than many commercial organizations I know. However... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, consensus is not always a good thing. Um, it can, in particular, make change really hard to deliver. Um, mm. And that that is the that's the balancing you know the the, the balancing issue with the armed forces is that they're there's sort of um, a homogeneity mm. that it, it doesn't encourage difference, and that's a real danger. Um, I remember going with a with a civilian boss to uh, a, a meeting of some high-ranking officers in somebody's private house. So we were all in our own um, civilian clothes, and we sat around at this guy's table in the garden, um, having a cup of tea and talking. And my boss, my civilian boss, pointed out to me, he looked around and he said, do you know you're all wearing the same shoes? <laughs> Every single one of us, there were six of us, we were all wearing the same shoes. You know, and that, that in a sense, is a, is a, um, a, a great visual <laughs> yes. explanation for the that homogeneity yes. that, that exists. And so yes. um, I... I I think the armed forces, there's lots of brilliant things about the armed forces, some really fantastic things, and I have never regretted for one second the, the career and the life that I've had. But there are definitely some things that hold it back. Um, and and um, it, to some degree it knows this, and it, it's trying to change it, but it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, like I've worked in advertising agencies in Soho where everybody in the meeting has been wearing the same pair of imported Japanese jeans. Yeah. So I guess that's the uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that, a, that is the, that's the advertising the advertising yeah. agency equivalent of that. Um, so let's so let's talk about now. You know, you've left the military. You've moved into the the world of business. What are the most useful transferable skills, if you like, that you've taken across? Um, age. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. because yeah. age comes yeah. uh, that means i've had lots of experience so, so yeah um, yeah absolutely that, yeah yeah, that yeah is, I get it. Um, a transferable skill i think running a large organization at some level a large organization is the same you know it's the same in advertising as it is in the military there are some factors that just pertain which are applicable anywhere um i think that um knowledge of government um, is a is mm. a is a thing that central government is is a thing that is mm. uh, at a premium, um, and so that's been useful. Um, I think that the the sort of attention I paid to innovation um, in the last say ten years of my career um, has been uh, pr productive in in the new role. But there are you know there are mm. things about my new life that are very different as well. Yeah, I was going to say is that what what are the things you've had to unlearn if you like. Uh, Different shoes? Um, no, I still wear the same shoes, I'm sad to say. <laughs> I, I think I've had to learn I had to have an enormous amount. Unlearn, I, I think it's a question I have to go away and think about. Um, right. You know, th th there are all kinds of new things that um, I didn't know anything about that I have learned in the last two and a half years. Um, uh, it's been a massively steep Go on, give, give, me, give me an example of, you know, what, for example. Well, um, so in the, in the startup arena, you know that whole startup model, that notion of uh, you know a small handful of people with an idea, um, then uh, the availability of capital to fund the development of that idea, and then the multiplicity of business models that you could adopt to make that uh, idea a success. You know that that's all very new to me and i've loved it you know it's a, and it is a very effective way i think of making progress um 
uh, as we can see, you know, are all around us. It's been massively facilitated by digital. You know, I don't think that it, it would have happened to the same degree without without um, the the um, fourth industrial revolution. But but you know, I, I do think it is uh, it's it's a model that big bureaucracies could learn from if they paid attention to them. You've said that I, I think in the context of the military, but I suppose to an extent you could you could extrapolate this beyond the military that 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 they should be harnessing better harnessing, let's say, the power of big data. I mean, you know, yeah. too keen on that phrase, but we all know what we mean. Big data and AI to help determine, you know, determine actions, I guess, in life and death scenarios, but I mean, but but presumably beyond that as well. Do you think that that could lead to the end of human, not the end, but at least the uh, a significant evolution in the nature of human leadership? I mean, Ah, I I thought you were going to say the end of humans. Um, uh, oh well, okay. Well, is, I mean, we started on a depressing note. We can't end up. We can't end on a depressing note as well. So I imagine there there, there will still be some um, constants that will apply and in any circumstances, as far as leadership mm. is concerned. I do yeah. I do think there are lots of things that AI does change though, um, mm. profoundly change, um, and we don't yet understand the degree to which it will profoundly change our lives yeah but i but i imagine that leadership is always going to be about providing clarity it's always going to be about mm. um setting mm. an example it's always going to be about um the strategy it's always going to be about resilience you know all of these things are always going to um apply i think in any future looking back on your i suppose your, your military career primarily given that's been the majority of your your working life what would you do differently if anything i would have used my elbows a little bit more i think I would have been more insistent that I knew what was right yeah, and less willing to work with this consensus. I think that's a really interesting answer because I think finding that balance between, mm. you know, consensus mm. and I suppose taking responsibility or saying, you know, no, this is, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a decision. We're going to go and do it like this. I, I think is a continual challenge for people in in leadership positions because it I is. think it, if you're if you, if you're at either extreme, I think you're a poor leader. If you're yeah. just continually in a circular consensus, you're not really leading. But if you're just at the other end, you're a sort of dictator. You know, yes. and we've, we've already we've already discussed some of the pitfalls of that, um, and finding that right balance. If you want to talk about executing on strategy, you have to have alignment in the, in the senior team. Mm. Um, yeah. Because if you don't, they just consent and evade. They 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 say yes yeah. and mean no. You know, I think I think this is uh, there's a great book by Patrick Lencioni about the five dysfunctions of a team, where um, which I think I recommend to anybody. It's about um, when teams don't work and 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 mm -hmm. you know, the one of the key dysfunctions is people actually violently agreeing but not saying so, violently disagreeing. Sorry, but not saying so. I mean, and 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 that is, I think, something I could have done better about if I was really honest with myself. I'm sure that's one of the dysfunctions of a team, and I and I, I always think that one of the key things that effective teams need to be able to do is they need to be able to disagree without falling yes. out. Yes, yeah. it's re it's really important. And, and by disagree, I mean you might you have a real row. I mean, yeah. you know, teams should be able to be really passionate with each other, with without falling out, and then you know get to the end of that and go anyway, right, okay, good. 
you know, let's go for a pint or, or, yes. or whatever it is that floats your boat. I think. So I've got one final question, Chris. We've, I've taken up a ton of your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. A question that is always a popular question is 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 about failure. You know, we all have successes, more we we all have failures. But what role has failure played in your journey as a leader? Well, I think that there are definitely things I have tried that didn't work, and as a result, I I you know I changed. Um, usually. Um, I think, if I'm honest, I always think that I'd be, as I come to the end of a job, I think I'd be great at the previous job. You know, so, so I'm about, always about yeah, five yeah. years behind the times. Um, <laughs> True so, so in other words, it takes time to understand, to process, you know, the, mm. that, the reason why that didn't work was, and now I could put that right, you know. Um, so I, I do, you know, I think, I think to, willingness to tolerate failure is such an important thing um and people say that but don't often often don't mean it you know, 100% you really it's really have so, to mean so it really easy thing to say yeah. but it's a really yeah, yeah it's quite a rare thing to do yeah. well yeah i agree i think the the final thing i would say is that though in, in this context is that i'd much rather fail because i tried something and it didn't work than because i hadn't tried you know and i really have always believed that in life that that you know i have a bias towards action uh, and i'm not afraid to, you know, to, to think that way. Um, and I, you know, I, I honestly think that um, th that's an important attribute to, if you want to succeed in any career, it's, it's having a bias towards action. Well, I, I mean, I, I literally couldn't have, I couldn't agree more. My, my fundamental belief about leadership is it is about getting stuff done. And if you're getting stuff done, you're not going far wrong. I think, in my, in my opinion, as a leader, okay. and, and you just have to accept that some of that stuff isn't going to work out how you hoped it might and move on um so look chris it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you thank you so much for your time uh, and thanks so much for appearing on the podcast no at all it's been my pleasure great conversation thank you chris if you enjoyed this podcast please take a moment to rate and review no bullshit leadership on apple podcasts it lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show thank you What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.